Please open your Bible to Exodus chapter 34. Let's do a quick review. We are learning about the tabernacle. And we saw that when the Lord brought the children of Israel down there to, to uh, Mount Sinai, that he made a covenant with them. And one aspect of the covenant was that the Lord was going to dwell among them in a sanctuary. And we saw in Exodus chapters 25 through 31 that the Lord gave them the instructions for the, for the sanctuary. And right now we're looking at a crisis that developed. Because while Moses was up there getting the instructions, the children of Israel were, were breaking the covenant that they had entered into. And what we will see after the crisis is that they went ahead to build it. But the nature of the crisis was that Israel had sinned and they were saved from destruction by Moses and then the covenant was restored. And we've seen that their sin was that they made a golden calf Remember the very first of the Ten Commandments. Can you all tell me what's the first of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, they were putting this golden calf above the Lord. But what's the second one? Thou you shall not make unto thee any graven image to bow down and worship it. And we saw that the Bible was very specific when it described what Aaron did. It says that he engraved it with an engraving tool. So this, there's no doubt about it. They, they were definitely... Breaking the breaking the covenant. Whenever Moses came down and, and uh, saw the calf, uh, he he broke the the tables of stone because the children of Israel had broken the covenant. Moses broke the physical tables of the stone to let them know this is it. All bets are off. <laughs> it's it's done. And then Moses went interceded for the Lord uh, to to spare the people. And then Moses went and confronted the people and he chastened the people. What were, what were two, well really there were three big things that happened. What were the three big things that happened when Moses confronted the people? Something happened to the calf, something happened to Aaron, and something happened to the people. What happened to the golden calf? It was ground into dust and poured into the, into the water which the children of Israel were, were drinking. What happened to Aaron? He was confronted about what he did, wasn't he? He was confronted about what he did and, and we heard his pathetic excuse for, for what had actually happened. And then what happened to the people? Yeah, yeah 3,000 of them were, were executed. The people were called on to get right or get dead, basically. And, and, uh, and those that got right got right and those that didn't were, were executed by the people. And then Moses interceded for the people again. <laughs> in order to restore the promise. The first time Moses interceded, God agreed that he would spare their lives. And then Moses went down and he confronted the people. And then Moses went to intercede for the people again to, to ask that the Lord would go ahead and fulfill his promise to take them into the land. And the Lord agreed to do that. But the Lord said, I'm not going with you. So Moses interceded a third time. And this picture is not an accurate representation because the third time Moses interceded, he actually went into the tent that he had pitched without the camp. So I took a little poetic license because I thought that's a really good picture of Moses interceding there. But he was actually in the tent on this third intercession. And, and what he interceded for this time was that God would go with them. Remember how, the, how Moses appealed to the Lord? Moses said, How shall it be known that that we are your people, except that you are with us. The, the sense of the presence of God. And, you know, that really connects with what Brother Brian has preached about the past two Sunday mornings, doesn't it? 
a sense of the presence of God and being yielded to the, the Lord personally in our lives. And we're going to talk about that just a little bit more this evening before we, before we finish. And Moses requested to see God's glory. And that may sound kind of strange. Okay, now Lord, we, you, we want your presence to go with us. And then he asks the Lord to show him, to show Moses God's way and to show Moses God's glory. Moses wanted a sense of confirmation that the Lord was with them. And so the, the, so the Lord took Moses up on the mountain and, and he revealed himself to Moses. And we took a look at that last week. And that's in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, where the Lord passed by in verse 6 and before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third and fourth generation. So, so the Lord does forgive, but he does not remove the consequences. And I, I, I think we, we may have ended up last time looking at that passage in Psalm number 99. Let's, let's go there, Psalm 99. Yes, Psalm 99, let's take a look at, let's begin at verse 6. Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name, they called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spake unto them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. Thou answerest them, O Lord our God. Thou wast a God that forgavest them, though thou tookest vengeance upon their inventions. And probably of those three, the one that we see, verse 8, the it demonstrated the most clearly is, is with Aaron. You know, the Lord forgave Aaron of his sin of making the calf. Nevertheless, the Lord took vengeance upon his, upon his invention. <laughs> Moses, uh, Aaron invented, I guess we could say he invented the calf. He did the, he did the wrong thing. He made the wrong thing. And the Lord forgave Aaron, and the Lord allowed Aaron to go on and be the, the high priest of Israel, but there were still consequences for what he did. Consequences upon, upon himself, consequences upon uh, the, the people that suffered because of their worshiping of the calf. So the Lord forgives, and yet the Lord, the Lord does allow us to suffer consequences for our actions. So it's one thing to, to be restored into a heart-to-heart fellowship with the Lord, but it's another thing to have all the consequences removed. So although the Lord forgives, there, there are still the, the, the results and the natural uh, outplaying of, of our actions, even though even though one might be restored to fellowship with God. So let's go back to Exodus, Exodus chapter thirty-four. So what we see at this point is that is that there's complete restoration between God and the and the children of Israel, and and it's all because of the of Moses, and and this is really noteworthy because what we're seeing here is this. Who truly was the intercessor between, between the children of Israel and the Lord? It wasn't Aaron. It was Moses. It was Moses. Although Aaron was the one that had the garments. And Aaron was the one that went through about the tabernacle doing the work of the service. And Aaron was the one that was in charge of offering the sacrifices and doing all the ordinances and things like that. Moses was the one who truly spared the people of Israel from the wrath of God. And, and that, that, of course, is a representation to us, isn't it? It's a reminder to us that, that the, 
that the rituals that we see in the tabernacle are, are not the real thing. The real thing is the, is the true intercessor, and our true intercessor, of course, is not Moses. Moses simply spared the physical life of the people, restored the physical blessings, and restored the presence of, of God's, uh, God's blessing among them, God's personal leadership among them to guide them where they're supposed to go through the wilderness and all of that kind of thing. But for us, our spiritual life and our spiritual promises to be with God forever in heaven and to have God's presence and God's personal guidance, that doesn't come to us through Moses. That comes to us through the great high priest that's after the order of Melchizedek. He is the true high priest on our behalf for our soul and our personal relationship to God. So the covenant was restored. Let's, um, let's take a look here. Uh, well, we've already looked at some of this. First of all, there's the preparation where God called Moses to come back up into the mountain. And Moses, as we saw, that uh, Moses rose up early in the morning in verse 4, and he went up to see the, the glory of God. Moses was eager to meet with the Lord. And again, I'd like to, to make an application toward what Brother Brian's been talking to us about on our Sunday morning services last Sunday and, and this Sunday about the importance of us having an eagerness to get into God's house and meet with the Lord. You know, I, I was uh, uh, talking with someone today about how the, it, it seems like that, you know, our church, Mission Boulevard Baptist Church, is capable of falling into the same pattern that happens to most churches. And, and that is that we started out well, and we started out excited with the Lord, you know, as, as, a, as a group. You know, it was pretty much that way, but the longer we go the more the flesh begins to take its toll and it seems to become more commonplace that folks come to the house of God just out of, just out of a sense of duty. There, there's actually a word for, for, for that kind of attendance. It's called perfunctory. You might look that word up. It's perfunctory. And perfunctory means you just show up and do it because it's just expected of you. Your heart's not really in it. You're not doing your best. Your mind and heart are, are not really there. You're just doing it. You know, it's, it's perfunctory. That's a good word. You might look it up. But, but uh, it seems like it, it's natural for us to find ourselves excited about other issues in life and other things that are going on in our life. But we continue to attend God's house because it's expected of us. And we, we, we really want to do it. But our heart's just not in it any longer. And Moses demonstrated to us here that whenever it came time for him to go up and see the Lord, he, would, he rose up early in the morning to go up and to meet with God and to, get, to, to have that fellowship and that communication with God. So that's a, that's a good example to us as well. And Moses did see God's glory, and we did, we did discuss that. God did restore the covenant in verses uh, 10 through, through 28. Um, the Lord, the Lord uh, discussed with Moses some particular issues, and you know I can't find my paper that my notes on about that. But, but uh, let's let's just take a look at that. Let's see. For the sake of time, we'll go quickly. Verse ten, and he said, "Behold, I make a covenant before all the, thy people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. So there's the Lord's promise that he's going to be with them and do great miracles among them. And then the Lord reminds them that they are to stay separated from the people from the Canaanites. There in about verses 11 through 17. He reminds them, you are going into the land of Canaan. You stay separated from those people because those people will turn your hearts away from God. And the people of Israel 
had just had had just had an object lesson of the truth of that because they had just come out of Egypt. And right there in the midst of making the covenants, their hearts were turned back to the gods of Egypt. And so the Lord tells them the first thing that he reminds them of whenever he renews the covenant is, do not entangle yourself with, with the Canaanites. They'll turn your hearts away from, from, from me. And then the Lord reminds them of the, of the uh, Sabbath days and the holy days that they are to keep beginning around verse Verse 18, and uh, those, are the, those are the main things that, that he points out to them. And then let's go to verse 29. In verse 20, well, verse, verse 28. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So, the, so here Moses was, was back up on the mountain, another forty days and forty nights. You know when he came down this time, the people were not worshiping a golden calf. So when he came down this time with the, uh, with the Ten Commandments, Moses was changed. And let's take a look at verse 29. It came to pass when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the Mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Or Moses, wist means knew. He did, he did not know. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses was done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. And when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. So again, Moses being in the presence of the Lord altered Moses' uh, appearance. It had a change. It changed Moses, and we're going to make a couple of quick applications here before we go. Let's let's take a look at some personal applications. Whenever Moses came down from the mount, he he brought an aura with him. He he brought a spirit with him, and and by spirit I don't mean you know he he brought the Holy Spirit or he brought a devil or a ghost or something. We're, I'm just talking about the, the the spirit here in the sense that that we might normally use the word spirit. You know, we've got team spirit or there's a, there's a good spirit among the people here. There were people who were, um, th- things of that nature. Basically, we're talking about a person's attitude, frame of mind, their, their mood. That's, maybe that might be a, a good word for it. But like Moses, we carry a, a spirit or an attitude or, em- or an emotional framework with us. And I'd like you to come with me to, to Luke chapter 9, verses 53 through 56. Over there, we, we see a couple of, of Jesus' disciples, people that were, that were following him around. And, and we see the frame of reference that they have there in Luke, 59, Luke 9, 53 through 56, where he says, They were going through the villages of Samaria, and the villages of Samaria did not receive Christ, because his faith was as though, was as though it, he would go to Jerusalem, and we could discuss that for the sake of time. We won't. Basically, the Samaritans didn't want anything to do with Jesus at this time. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, 
Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. All right, so those guys had a particular spirit about them, didn't they? What word would you, would you use to describe the spirit of James and John at this point? Hmm? Did somebody say Old Testament? No, well, I guess sort of. But you know, whenever you see how God treated Aaron, you find out God had mercy in the Old Testament too, didn't he? Yeah, these guys were, well, I guess judgmental, weren't they? Judgmental in the sense that they they wanted to destroy people. They were vindictive. They had a vindictive spirit about them. And you know, if we saw uh, James and John, we would think that they were pretty religious guys. I mean, you got you got to be pretty spiritual to walk with Jesus all the time. So, so there they were. They, they carried a spirit. We might carry a spirit like Moses that reflects the presence and glory of God, or we may have a spirit like James and John that's, that's, um, that's uh, uh, critical and vindictive. If we remain in the presence of the Lord, we will reflect the Lord. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3. And 2 Corinthians 3 is a good commentary explanation of the passage that we just read in Exodus 34 where Moses came down from the mountain. For 2 Corinthians 3, let's, be, let's begin in verse 5. Paul's discussing his ministry. Paul had come to Corinth and had preached the gospel. People had been saved, baptized. He had made disciples. And then some other Christians had come in after him, Christians from Jerusalem, who told the people of of Corinth that you all have made a good start by trusting Christ. Now, if you really want to go and experience everything that God has for you, you're going to have to become Jews. You're going to have to become Jews. You're going to have to be initiated into into Judaism and start observing the all of the uh, the, the Jewish rituals and commandments regarding regarding your moral behavior. Yes, but also regarding the way you dress, what you eat, your holidays, and things like that. So, uh, so you're going to have to go on and, and, and adhere to the the covenant of the law. So, so Paul's writing back to, to the to the Corinthians to say. To say that, uh, look, I'm an apostle of Christ. It doesn't matter whether these guys came out of Jerusalem or whatever. They, they are not the true apostle of Christ to you, to you I am. And then come with me to verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. And then he's going to talk here about Moses. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? All right, you see what he's telling us? Whenever Moses went went before God and received the tables of stone... For the for the law, which was which was a which was a covenant that would produce death, because they couldn't keep the law, they were going to be under judgment. You know, from the from the very beginning, they were doomed to fail, because the only way that you could keep the law of Moses 
was, was if you had the righteousness of God in your heart, if you were a born-again person. That's the only way that you could do that, and that's going to be in your spirit. So they were doomed to fail from the beginning. Nevertheless, even though Moses was bringing down a covenant that was doomed for failure and doomed for death, he reflected the glory of God. Verse 8, How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. In other words, compared to the, to the ministration of the gospel of Christ, the presence of Christ, the ministration of the law doesn't really have any glory. Verse 11. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. So even to this day, he says, those that are that are striving to be made right with God through keeping the law, they have a veil over their heart. They have a veil over their heart because they're, they're, they're trying to accomplish something that's impossible to do. They're not really seeing the truth of their condition and they're not seeing the truth of God's provision. So the veil is there. But look what it says. Nevertheless, when it, whenever, whenever their heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, the Lord is that spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that as we behold the glory of the Lord in the New Testament, and, and not just the books here, but... But in our relationship with God, based upon who we are and what we are and what Christ has done for us, we're changed into the glory of the Lord. As, as we behold the image and the glory of the Lord, the Lord changes us, just like he changed Moses. That's why it's so important to get into the Word of God. Because as we get into the Word of God and let the Word of God come into our life, as we, as we learn the life of Jesus and we, and we learn about the the establishment of the church and we learn the instructions that the Apostle Paul gave to the New Testament churches for what they're to believe and how we're supposed to live and we learn about our relationship with God and that comes into our life and, and we behold that with, a, with an open heart to hear and respond God transforms us and it's not going to happen any other way except through his word and that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here the New Testament that Paul's talking about here and the ministration of life, that's, that's only found in the Word of God, in the Scriptures, in the teachings of the Apostles, which we have preserved for us here in our New Testament. And so as we, as we focus on the image of the Lord that's presented to us there, the glory of the Lord come, comes into our life. And, and again, I just want to emphasize, that's why it's so important for you and me personally to get into God's word so that God can transform our lives. Because as we have God's word in our heart and in our thoughts, something happens to us. We begin to act differently. We begin to think differently. We begin to feel differently about, about our circumstances. 
and the presence and glory of God comes through us. Well, what are the characteristics of the, of the Spirit that God gives us? Well, I know that you know our minds uh, may automatically leap to Galatians that gives us a list of the fruits of the Spirit. And that's, that's good. That's good because those qualities will eventually become dominant in our, in our character and in our lives. But, but I'd like for us to focus on, on a passage here that, that talks specifically about what kind of attitude comes forth from us uh, from the presence of God. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. He says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now I know that we're past time, but I'd like to give you a couple of thoughts about that. Whenever we receive a, a, the, the, a, a spirit, a frame of reference, an attitude uh, from God, it's not. It's not. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit here. He's talking about attitudes. Fear, love, sound mind. He's not describing the Holy Spirit. He's describing our frame of reference, our way of thinking. And what is the way of thinking that we get from God? Well, power. And the idea of power here is not intimidation. You know, sometimes people use the word power to mean intimidating. Oh, he's a powerful person. And what we mean by that is that he's intimidating. You don't want to cross him. He'll destroy you. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about power in the sense of intimidation. We're talking about power in the sense of confidence. Power in the sense of confidence. The spirit that we get from the Lord is a spirit of confidence. It's true. You know, we've um, our country is undergoing a, a horrible change right now, and I can say that based on the Bible. Uh, if you've uh, if you know some of the executive orders that have been handed down from the White House in the past couple of days, those are horrible changes that have come down uh, based on the Word of God based on what God says about things like thou shalt not kill, things of that nature. Um, but we're undergoing horrible changes. But what's the spirit, what is the spirit that God gives us in the midst of horrible circumstances? Is it a spirit of hopelessness? Dread? No, God gives us a sense of confidence. Sense of con- God is still in control. God is still in control. The Lord's going to work out everything for his good. And if we're right with him, we may undergo some very difficult times. But everything's going to, going to turn out well. We, we, can have, we can have that confidence in the midst of, in the midst of, a, of a terrible situation. And that, that's just one thing. But that applies to all aspects of our lives. That sense of, of confidence. But we only get that by being in the presence of God and, and having God's spirit rub off on us. And, and so uh, God gives us a spirit of, of power, a, a spirit of confidence, and a spirit of love. And of course we, are, we understand what, what love is by going to 1 Corinthians 13. The spirit that God gives us is a spirit of concern for other people. We're not just walking about focused on self and how is everything going to affect me and how do I feel about this and what am I going to do? Instead, we're, we're looking outward to, to, see, to see the needs of other people and what can we do to, to bless and benefit them. That attitude and that frame of reference comes from God. This self-focus is not from the Lord. And then the, the uh, spirit of a sound mind. Clear thinking clear thinking, the, the ability to think things through, make good decisions. Uh, 
That comes from the Lord. Now, if you look at the opposite of these, if you look at the opposite of these, what is the spirit that would naturally come forth from a human being? Uh, It's a spirit of fear, dread, uncertainty, anxiety. That's what we would naturally experience. If you have a problem with anxiety, spend some time in the presence of God. Or a spirit of selfishness, self-focus rather than a focus on others. And a, a spirit of foolishness. Spirit of foolishness, you know, just knee-jerk reactions, <laughs> one after the other. <laughs> uh, be, being influenced by whatever happens to be the, the, the biggest and, and loudest squeaky wheel at the time. Um, that, those, are, those are the natural human tendencies. But, but if instead of just responding to circumstances and responding to our human impulses, if we will go into the presence of God, we'll find that, the, that a different spirit will rub off on us. We may not even be so much aware of it. But the folks around us will notice a difference. Just like Moses. Did you notice it said, Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone. Moses wasn't aware of the change that had occurred to him. But other people were. Other people were. And as we're in the presence of the Lord, people will tell a difference about us. And isn't that what we really want as a Christian testimony? Isn't that what we really want? We really want for folks to see, the Lord is with me. There's something different here. So that when we speak, there's power. There's power in it that will will point them to Christ.